Welcome to the Lubber's Hole. You're with Ian and Mike. And just like always, we are rereading the Aubrey Matry novels of Patrick O'Brien. We are partway through the Ionia mission. Mike, can you catch us up? Where did we get to last time? What might be in store for us this week? I can, Ian. Last week was our, our Happy New Year's show. And uh, judging by the start of the new year, I think somehow 2020 got extended just a little bit. <sighs> but nevertheless, we press on. Last week, we learned of Hart's treachery in disguising the true nature of Jack and Babington's Medina mission. Jack was saved Ooh. from court martial. Yeah, we weren't too happy about that. Luckily, because Jack had demanded written orders, he saved from court martial. He's feeling a little down about the crew's loss of respect for him after Medina. And I, you know, maybe partially because of that, Jack almost besmirched his marital honor at the crown in Mahan, that great inn that we remember well from Master and Commander, with Mercedes, who we also remember well. And luckily, just before he got carried away, Stephen came flying in and saved him from what Stephen described as double spouse breach. Jack disappointed his crew yet again as he grabs Stephen up and sails past unguarded merchantmen to deliver Stephen to an important top-secret intelligence mission on the coast of France. Professor Graham shows up out of the blue, uninvited, Mm. fires a gun, is wounded, and scares everybody off for this mission that Stephen has so carefully put together. Uh, Stephen rescues Graham, bids his lucky bittern farewell, and is carried off by Jack. When we rejoin this week, Ian, Jack is in front of Admiral Thornton once again. We learn that everybody seems to be terrified of being castrated by the mumps, and the Grand Ortorio, which has been building for some chapters, now comes to its big dress rehearsal. Mm -hmm. It survives a big storm, but not the return of our dear surprise with news of the French fleet. Yeah, a big dress rehearsal. Dress rehearsal. Do you smoke it, Mike? Do you smoke it? <laughs> That's right. I smoke it. Okay, that's enough lame dad jokes. We're never going to have any of those again. Probably. No, no, not not for at least the next five minutes. <laughs> so lots to talk about this week, Mike. Um, we're at the beginning of chapter eight, and the chapter opens with Jack back in the Admiral's cabin, you might say the Admiral's office aboard HMS Ocean. This time, good news, Jack is sitting comfortably. He's not under threat of court-martial like he was last time. And Jack's brought mail. He's brought supplies. And we have also Dr. Maturin, of course, Stephen back ashore, safe from his mission of rescuing Graham off the beach. And the Admiral's Really glad for all of those, for the mail and for the supplies and for the return of Stephen Maturin. And Stephen, in turn, is talking with Dr. Allen, the Admiral's secretary, the Admiral's head of intelligence. And Mike, Stephen is totally, I think, at home here in this environment. He's liked being back in the Mediterranean. He's liked being back in contact with the European end of Napoleonic intelligence and he's enjoying having peers around him. I think he's really enjoying this conversation with Alan. He's bemoaning the existence, though, of all the competing intelligence agencies. We saw this a little bit on the French side in The Surgeon's Mate, and we're seeing this a lot on the Allied side. 
um, here in the Ionian mission. These agencies not talking, not communicating with each other. And I think when this first comes along in conversation, Alan assumes straight away that Stephen's talking critically about Dr. Graham and is kind of attaching the ruin of this mission in France to Dr. Graham. But actually, Stephen assures him that he sees Graham as a competent man, a good agent, um, and certainly with his language skills, his ability to translate the Turkish languages could still yet be of service to the Admiral in his dealings with all of the Turkish outposts in the Mediterranean. It's an interesting thing is that having this discussion, Alan uh, actually pipes up. Stephen gives him a background on Graham's successes and his qualifications. And finally, Alan's quite happy to have him. He says, but but would Mr. Graham ever consent to serve? And Stephen, I, I thought this was kind of a, a fascinating uh, position for Stephen. Stephen says, Mr. Graham has no choice. He quite understands that in natural justice, he is now my property, my lawful prize. And when I desired him to remain aboard, right, rather than leave the ship at Mahan, he submitted without a murmur. After all, poaching on my preserve, the enemy coast, he undid all my careful legitimate web. And I took him off that coast at very considerable inconvenience to myself, since I had to prop him from miles through an evil bog, and at very great danger indeed to those devoted souls who came through in the surf, and such surf, at the very minute of appointed time while the horse patrols were already searching the dunes. So here we have Stephen, you know, who's completely opposed to slavery, completely all for the little guy. And now Graham is his property, his lawful property. Yeah. And, and Graham, who was such an arrogant kind of, you know, a little bit condescending and not to be trifled with guy, apparently um, <laughs> pretty, pretty humbled here. Yeah. And once again, first of all, I was reading this and thinking, oh, this is a classic maturin thing. He catches us up with the action in somebody else's report. But he's also got Stephen really enjoying a moment of high status. Exactly as you say, he's prepared to contemplate the idea of Graham as his slave. A little bit in the same way that Jack regarded Mr. Scriven, the copywriter, as his property once um, once Scriven and Jack had had that encounter in the park That's all those right. books ago. That's right. So and maybe this is a good sign, Mike, because Graham and Stephen both got off to an awkward start competing with each other a little bit. Like you say, Graham was a bit touch me not and Stephen was a bit heavy handed with his showing away. But maybe now they're a bit obliged to each other in a more even handed way. Maybe this mm. is going to be OK. Maybe yeah. Graham's going to be our guy. Maybe he's not going to stumble around at night with a cock pistol in his hand quite so often. <laughs> so anyway, anyhow. Stephen gets Graham invited to dinner in the wardroom of the Worcester, and uh, there's quite an occasion waiting for him there, isn't there? Oh my gosh, this is hilarious. This this next, it, and it goes on for a bit. I just love this. <laughs> you know, Graham doesn't actually even get to the wardroom here, you know, um, e- even though he got this gracious invitation from Stephen, and he's asked all about the crew, and he's so wonderful about it. Stephen kind of brought him up to speed with the poets Rowan and Moet competing that not all was well in the wardroom. But then, and, and you, Ian, you've got to tell us more about this, uh, Stephen tells him about the Worcester having an outbreak of mumps. Yeah, and again, Stephen gets to play off his humors successfully this time. Um, he points out that uh, mumps in males who have the disease after puberty often get orchitis, uh, swelling of those particular parts of the gentleman's anatomy, and resulting in effectively the castration of the patient. And he really lays this on thick. 
Graham's taken aback. And th- this rumor ends up spreading throughout the ship, as we're going to see in a second. They, they realize that Mumps is highly contagious. And Stephen's very much enjoying his kind of false reassurance that he offers. Such anxiety, said Stephen, smiling at the recollection. Such uneasiness of mind. One might have supposed it was a question of the bubonic plague. I urged them to consider how very little time was really spent in coition, but it had no effect. I spoke of the eunuch's tranquility and peace of mind, unimpaired intellectual powers. I cited Narses and Hermias. Stick a pin in those two names. I urged them to reflect that a marriage of minds was far more significant than mere carnal copulation. If eating were an act as secret as the deed of darkness... Would it be so obsessive, so omnipresent, the subject of almost all wit and mirth? And we've we've had this before, right, Mike? This is Stephen trolling himself, his buddies with his very, very detached enlightenment view of the world, but he's taking the rise out of them as well for being quite so attached to their masculinity. Now, Mike, um, it's certainly true that mumps causes orchitis in adult males. It's certainly true that this is a potentially a risk for fertility. Do you know what? I went to Google... Does mumps cause? And I didn't even have to finish the sentence. If you type into Google, does mumps cause? The next word it offers you is infertility on the autocomplete. And (laughs) no, mumps doesn't cause infertility. The risk of complete male sterility is very low. It can cause a reduced sperm count. And I don't think that's just modern science. I think Stephen probably knew this and he's just winding them up. Well, and, and, and wind them up, he did. I mean, Graham immediately... You know, says no, no, no. You know, right, uh, on second thought, uh, <laughs> gosh, I, I really, I, I've got another engagement. I can't come over. Oh, that's okay. You can come see. You know, you can come see the oratorio on Sunday. Oh, a performance on the Lord's Day. No, no, no. I can't. I can't go. I can't go. And he's caught. You know, he's quickly backing up, getting next to a window where he can breathe, and getting out of the wardroom with Stephen. And I guess Stephen's finding that same reception back on the ship. Nobody will come near him because Stephen is near the people with the mumps and and they don't want this. They're scared to death. And there's a piece of me that says Stephen is winding them up. But there's also this thing that harkens back. You know, Stephen's talked about this before with with Sir Joseph Blaine that, hey, you know, you know, not being able to have sex is not everything. I mean, because love is so much more than that. And and he makes these reference to the two eunuchs here, you know, Narcy's. And Hermias, and it was interesting. I, I was trying to to find these guys, and uh, I had to I had to go back to the 1911 Encyclopedia Britannica. And Britannica, you can't wow. say fairer than that, right? No. Um, but it's like Lord Varys in Game of Thrones. You know, kind of think of this eunuch, but more militant and powerful and influential. That one of these guys was a, a famous general under Justinian. The other. Hermes is governor in Mycia, and they not only were, I mean, even though we don't see that much about them today, apparently they were quite famous in antiquity to the point where Aristotle would offer them sacrifices aspiring to their greatness as as he worked to to essentially, um, you know, achieve his own greatness. So fascinating there. Yeah, I've got a feeling, though, that allusions to respectable figures in antiquity doesn't cut it with the ship's crew, though. I think they'll still steer steer clear. Right. It's too funny. Boy, this thing with masculinity. You know, O'Brien's poked 
at this before, and and some of it with Dylan with tragic consequences and Master and Commander and you know the people you know the doing that comes out and everything you know we come back at this but yeah. this one is is certainly a time when we can be sort of laughing up our sleeve and at the same time realizing you know when it came to masculinity this was deathly serious for these folks here oh, goodness me anyway with or without the mumps the oratorio <laughs> went ahead and again we've had this trailed a lot and i've really enjoyed the anticipation the the very the very naval style of putting on a show means you take the the piece itself and you adapt it. We put on a, a naval version according to naval resources and naval tastes. So the oratorio goes ahead. There's a grand dress rehearsal on Saturday below decks in the midst of a threatening storm. And they're determined to go ahead with this oratorio. They've worked really hard to get there. The Admiral, we learn, had emphatically expressed approval of the performance. So there are going to be guests on the Worcester from many ships. The Worcesters themselves were keen, in this great naval phrase, to wipe the eyes of the crews from Orion and the Canopus, who had distinguished dancers and circus performers in their crews. They wanted to get one up on those guys. So they couldn't recruit any of the women on board to sing. They were pretty sure then that it would be their outstanding costumes, their outstanding costumes designed for the audience, it says, to be struck all of a heap. But Mike, they've got a bit of a dilemma here. The costume material they'd ordered had not arrived. And we hear the rumor or the the tale being told that it had been intercepted by a privateer and was now adorning the whore ladies of Marseille. And maybe that's another bit of toxic masculinity in that reference. But the crew tried many different ways to convince the officers and through them, Jack, to allow them to cut spare sails and turn them into costumes so almost like pleading to the king they plead to bondon and to killick and to pullings and to maturin to make cause with jack making the point that the success of the performance and the honor of the ship are at stake and just like a good king (laughs) jack knows all about their desires and mike there's a little bit of the wisdom of solomon here (laughs) jack says any goddamn swap any man that presumed to tamper with any sail however the thin however worn in the bunt or chafed in the bands should have his ears nailed to a four inch plank and be set adrift with half a pound of cheese on the other hand on the other hand there were seven untouched bolts of number eight canvas and if sails and his crew like to shape the cloths for a fair weather suit of upper sails well that might do the trick sails which is shorthand for the sailmaker, Sales did not seem to comprehend. He looked stupid and despondent. Come, Sales, said Jack. How many two-foot cloths do you need for a main royal? Seventeen at the head and twenty-two at the foot, Your Honour. And how deep are they? Seven quarter yards, not counting the tabling or the gores, which is all according. Why then, there you are, you fold your cloth four times, tack a couple of grommets to each clue of the open ends, clap it over your shoulders fore and aft, and there you are, in an elegant, refined costume in the classical taste, very like a toga, and all without cutting canvas or wronging the ship. Well played, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say I'd say you're right in the wisdom of Solomon. How's that for dividing the baby? You can't steal any yeah. of the sailcloth, but here's how you can use it. <laughs> now, he's obviously hoping that this means that the... Uh, the sails are going to be used in a very simple way and that they're going to be fit to be reused as, <laughs> as active duty canvas later on. But we might have to see how that plays out. We, we learned that by dress rehearsal time, the classical simplicity was gone. They'd been fitted out with embroidery and ribbons in the seams. Um, the Cooper and his friends wore gilded keg hoops 
as crowns. And Mike, I love this description of uh, of Jack up on deck in the storm listening to them practice below. He was not an extremely amorous man. Hours or even days might pass without his thinking of women at all. But even so, he had no notion of the eunuch's tranquility. And although he did his duty, visiting the sick bay daily and standing doggedly by the cases of mumps for three full minutes, he tended to avoid his friend Maturin, who wandered around in a most inconsiderate way, as though he did not mind spreading infection, as though it were all one to him if the entire ship's company piped like choir boys rather than roaring away in this eminently manly fashion so that the Worcester's beams vibrated underfoot. Isn't it great that the sound of masculinity and broken voices is part of the fabric of the ship vibrating underfoot? <laughs> so we've got all this imagery and this poetry about, about masculinity. We've also got a bit of imagery about horses, another favorite symbolic theme of O'Brien's. We hear that Jack's watching how the Worcester deals with the threatening seas, with the winds. He's thinking about how to support the masts. And O'Brien writes, the whole ship was suffering, not only the masts, the Worcester hated this particularly Mediterranean rhythm that caught her between two paces, as it were, so that she could neither trot easy nor canter, but had to force her way. Forcing her way through the sea with one reef more out of her topsails than her better built companions, many of them from French or Spanish yards. Mm. And Mike, we've got this really deep metaphor that O'Brien loves of um, Jack riding a horse. And in this case, the Worcester is clearly the horse. And we've got a little bit of foreshadowing here that maybe this horse might not have the strength to carry Jack the whole distance. Let, let's see what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, you know, the storms are going, the storms are going so hard. O'Brien tells us that the whole fleet has been, you know, the blockading fleet that Jack is a part of under Admiral Thornton has been blown away. It's way off station here, but nevertheless, off station in this storm, Jack uh, is continuing to listen to the oratorio below, but O'Brien writes, he's also listening to the complaining of the masts. And below the innumerable voices of the sea and the wind, right down to the deep, confused groaning of the timbers themselves, out of tune and unhappy, he reflected that if she could not be provided with new knees in the course of a thorough refit, he might eventually have to frap her whole carcass winding cable round and round until it looked like an enormous chrysalis. The idea made him smile, and smile all the wider since the choir forward had worked their way to their favorite chorus and were now topping it, the Covent Garden, with all their might, with infinite relish too. Hallelujah, sang their captain with them as a fresh seat of rain struck the ship drumming on the back of his hood. Hallelujah, until an unmistakable gunshot to leeward cut his note short, and at the same moment, the lookout hailed, sail hole. Sail on the Lobbert Quarter. Oh, great moment. Great moment, oh. isn't it? We've gone from right there with Jack reflecting on the state of the ship, and we're gone right back out to the ocean, and we have a sail. Oh, maybe, maybe some action could be coming. We go back onto the perspective of up on deck, and Jack and Mowat can't spot this ship that the lookout has seen, and Pullings, who's been staying away from Dr. Maturin with his infection, is in the main top, and he says it's just abaft the mizzen backstay. 
and they cry out together. It's the surprise. Of course, it's the surprise. Surprise is within sight now. She's firing a cannon. She's letting her topsail sheets fly, which is the signal for urgent, urgent action, almost for distress. She's calling for the squadron to join her. And Jack knows that this can only mean one thing. It means the French are out. So Mm. Jack anticipates the Admiral's next order and prepares to wear ship just as the signal to do so is sent up. So the signal comes. Boson and Holler, the senior mate, who hate handle, they've been avoiding the oratorio, waste no time in rousing out the choir, screaming, rouse out, uniting gales, all hands to wear ship. And we get this really comic scene, Mike. Some of the uh, able seamen are able to quickly shift out of their costumes into the, the clothes that they need to go on deck. Some of the lubbers, some of the landsmen don't remove their togas before they take their station, clapping on. And seeing them, Jack laughed aloud. Mike, this is something that we've waited for for a long time now. Jack genuinely feeling the thrill of action, the thrill of anticipation. It says, his heart was bubbling high. That old splendid feeling of more, far more than common life. Wow. So, Mike, surprise on the horizon. Topsail sheets flying. Crew all called to action. This is all too much excitement. I think I need a break. Yep, my my heart's bubbling high, and I I think other parts as well. (laughs) We'll take a few moments to have this short break, and we'll be right back with you. Welcome back to the Lubber's Hole. Jack is preparing his ship to sail through the storm, through these really rough seas after the French. He really does not want to lag behind the squadron. He sends for the bosun and he asks him to put up his long disused top gallant mast. He's telling Holler that they're going to need him pretty soon and he's laughing. And then he tells him about putting light hawsers to the mastheads. And while that wasn't entirely unknown to the service, you know, Brian tells us that Lord Cochrane and Captain Aubrey, we've really got to come back to Cochrane at some point, Ian, yeah. and a few other commanders have achieved surprising feats with these same hawsers, but the service as a whole was dead against them as innovations, ugly, untidy innovations worthy of privateersmen or even, God forbid, of pirates. It needed very great authority or a peerage or preferably both to impose them on an old experienced bosun. And the surprise was quite near at hand before Holler, the bosun that is, moved off, at least outwardly convinced that the Worcester must disgrace herself in appearance if, during the probable chase of the French fleet, she were not to disgrace herself in performance. So, Mike, this connection with Cochrane, first of all, lots of our listeners, I think, already know. And and if you don't, we hope you will appreciate that the Jack Aubrey character's exploits are very closely modelled on the exploits of this guy, Lord Cochrane. Most of Lord Cochrane's active naval life doing this kind of service that we're talking about here was actually a little earlier than we are in the timeline, in the kind of period 1804 to about 1810. But Cochrane was absolutely the model for Aubrey, not only in his seagoing exploits, but also for some of his character, some of that rather impetuous kind of independent-minded personality. What's unusual here for me is that we 
hear Cochrane's name mentioned aloud in the canon. Very often, I think Aubrey is so often doing the very same things that Cochrane actually did, like the action against the Cacafuego is a direct take uh, in Master and Commander from Cochrane's action aboard HMS Speedy taking the Gamo. So Cochrane is so much the model for Aubrey that we very rarely hear of him talked about. There are loads of other real-world captains, including Hennage Dundas and many of the admirals that we've met who are direct characterizations of real-world people. We don't often hear Lord Cochrane mentioned, but here he is. And Mike, I think we're going to come across a couple more Cochrane-isms as we get through the later chapters of the Ionian mission. But if you haven't come across Cochrane before, there's some really great material for you to dig into in the world of you know online articles and books and so on. If you're familiar with Cochrane, then be reassured that O'Brien, I think, is tipping his hat towards the character who is the inspiration for Jack Aubrey here. Yeah, one of our listeners, Sloop Speedy on Twitter, yeah, Petra, does a, a complete blog on Cochrane and reads all kinds of texts and articles and books referring back to him. And Ian, I know you're in the midst of that. I'm, I'm just starting another Cochrane biography. Yeah, absolutely. The David Cordingly biography of, uh, of Cochrane uh, called Cochrane the Dauntless is really fascinating. We'd really love to find a way to get a chat with David Cordingly as part of the podcast. So if anybody's got ideas for how we can approach Cordingly, let us know. We've tried his publisher. If anybody's got a number or an email address for David Cordingly, or David, if you're listening, do you want to join us? Come on board. Anyhow, back back to the Worcester. What's going on there? Well, we've got the Worcester here and and the surprise and you know the whole squadron is is just racing to the surprise. And Aubrey realizes that the seas are, are much too rough to launch boats. So the surprise is going to have to get into hailing distance of the ocean, the Admiral's ship, so that she can deliver whatever report she has to the Admiral. And they, they all know that uh, the, the ships that are close by may get to listen in. So people are kind of jockeying for position to get close and hear this. Mm -hmm. They also know that Latham, the captain of the surprise and the captain of the fleet who will be speaking on the Admiral's behalf, have these prodigious, tremendous voices. Uh, Unfortunately, Jack can't quite hear them despite getting close. But the Orion's captain, Wodehouse, is kind enough to tell Jack once he's overheard it that the French are indeed out. They have 17 of the lines, six of them, three deckers, five frigates, and that Admiral Mitchell from the inshore squadron was chasing them, and he's been sending messengers back like the surprise, uh, you know, out trying to find the rest of the squadron, inform them, and, and try to get everybody converge on the French. As all this is going on, Stephen comes on deck. He's been hearing about the French fleet being out, but Jack roars at him, go below, doctor, go below directly. And quite shocked by the vehemence of his cry, Stephen turned. But this is Stephen the lubber, so we know what's going to happen next. Even as he turned, a party of seamen ran the stiff end of a cablet into his side, thrusting him under the fife rail and calling out, by your leave, sir, by your leave, as they did so. As he was disentangling himself from the belaying pins, he happened to loop a fancy line about his ankle and walk off with it until his old friend Tom Pullings bawled, Stop playing with that fancy line and go below, with such a ferocity that might have daunted Beelzebub. Oh, poor old Stephen. I mean, first of all, he's persona non grata because no one wants to be singing soprano because of the mumps. And second of all, He's been pushed to one side. But by the way, Mike, this is a classic paragraph of O'Brienisms full of really almost impenetrably obscure naval jargon, but it really doesn't matter. 
No. <laughs> what, what's a cablet? What's a fife rail? I think we can probably manage a belaying pin. What's a fancy line? Do you know what? It really doesn't matter. A fancy line is a little lightweight piece of cordage. But Stephen's got his ankle wrapped around it. And there's a really great image there of him being told off by Pullings for playing with the rope work. I'm sure Stephen has got to be a little bit in shock. I'm kind of wondering, does, I mean, you know, he's having fun a little bit with the mumps. And I and I think maybe given this kind of treatment over an extended time, Stephen really believes that some of his shipmates may be in danger. But, but Stephen is treating it lightly because he doesn't think it's a big thing. And of course, everybody else can't believe that he's treating it lightly. Stephen, you need to wear your mask in this store. Get over it. That's, yeah. <laughs> uh, but but at the at the same time, the uh, you know I'm I'm feeling pretty sad for Stephen here because you know these you know these are his buddies and everybody is like oh my gosh they're they're just you know running him right under decks actually pushing them down getting him out of the way here I'm 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 hoping that we get a break for Stephen here. Well, the good news is the the, the break comes. Not too much later. The evening comes, the rain clears, more wind coming over the deck, but the weather's clear enough that Jack calls Stephen back on deck. Jack tells him that 17 of the French line are out, gives him joy of their prospects, meaning prospects of a fleet action. And we have a really great Jack and Stephen moment. Is there a real likelihood of our finding them? We are sailing towards the east, I see, said Stephen, nodding in the direction of the bloody remains of sunset on the Worcester's starboard bow. Ah, westwards, I believe, if you'll forgive me, said Jack. It appears that the sun is usually found to set westerly in the Mediterranean. Stephen rarely suffered facetiousness patiently, but now he only said, Ah, west, I mean. Are you persuaded they have gone to westward? <laughs> so again, Mike, the, the, the sarcasm and the banter stakes are quite even here. Stephen knows he's been rinsed a little bit, so he's he's willing to withdraw. Right. So everybody's okay. <laughs> So Jack, meanwhile, is absolutely persuaded that the French have gone to the West. He adds that the Admiral thinks they're making for the Atlantic and hopes to catch them somewhere north of Cape Cavalaria. And if it turns out that they're heading in the opposite direction and they are instead attacking Sicily, then as Jack says, to coin a naval phrase, there will be the devil to pay and no pitch hot. It's interesting. That's, you know, here's what we think. Here's all the reasons we think it. But we really don't know for sure because Surprise left early. Um, and, and here they go and they could be going completely in the opposite direction, but on top of the fact of, of where, where are they headed and will we find them? Stephen's a little concerned and, and he asks about their odds, given that they you know, they'll be attacking 17 ships of the line with 12 ships of the line. Uh, Jack, of course, is, is pretty enthusiastic about the whole thing, as we've said, and, and tells Stephen that, you know, the Admiral be attacking if the odds were twice as bad. He also reminds Stephen, though, that they've got uh, Admiral Mitchell in the San Joseph and any anything that he has left of the inshore squadron that hasn't been blown away by the storm um, and hopes that they'll meet them tomorrow. Well, they start speculating what a victory would mean. It might mean, for example, for Jack that he could go to America now, which he's wanted to do in one of the new heavy frigates. For Stephen, you know, he says it might mean that the war with Napoleon could come to an end. And and Stephen would just love that. He's thinking that the balance is such now that one decisive victory could really change everything. So the stakes are really high for everybody. And then Jack says, and the Admiral could go home. Lord, how it would set him up. 
He would be a new man. So would I, for that matter. A decisive action, Stephen. It sets you up amazingly. So we've got this possibility, and we've got this possibility for the Admiral. Stephen saying, you know, without this action over the French, he probably doesn't have two or three months left. And that was some time ago. We've got Jack, who's been kind of fading you know, losing his crew's respect. We've been hoping to kind of bring him back up. He almost tripped again in Mahan. This action could set him back up. Stephen, with his kind of this incredible passion in his life to defeat Napoleon, this action could do it. You know, here we go. Well, we get this really tantalizing view of future success for everybody. And O'Brien doesn't give those things out lightly because, of course, in the next paragraph, he's going to show us how it could all come crashing down again. They turn the glass, they strike the bell, and Jack learns that there's nearly three feet of water in the Worcester's well. That's a foot and a half more than he expected. He orders the forward pumps to be shipped in addition to the pumps that are already running. And Stephen wonders why they're not going faster. Strip the wind, spread all the sails we possess. But Jack explains that the Admiral does not want to be left behind. So he's setting the pace at the pace of the slowest. He doesn't want to beat the French there. He doesn't want to lose the advantage of the weather gauge. Hmm. Mm. So we also get another little bit of seamanship thrown in here. All of Jack's unsightly additions of light hawsers to the mastheads have got the Worcester sailing well, but... She's still opening her seams on the upward roll. She's taking on lots more water than he liked. And Mike, I think we're going to come back to this idea of the sailing motion of the Worcester more and more as this chase goes on. Meanwhile, though, Jack tours the ship and he notices that in spite of the men being in high spirits at the notion of meeting the French and full of fun over the oratorio, they'd still not forgiven him for Barker. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this has really got to wound Jack. He and yeah. and we O'Brien has already told us he puts so much stock in the opinion of the men, uh, and he knows how important, especially going into action, having a ship that's together. You know what Jack would call a happy ship is, and and uh, that's it's a concern to Jack. It's a concern to us. And you might all remember that we talked about this metaphor of the rhino aboard the Polyphemus being maybe a metaphor for some of the character of Jack. And we want to give a a, a shout out to our friend, Brian Wilson, our former guest, Brian Wilson, um, who joined us in the dialogue on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash lubbers hole and said, don't we think that this might be a foreshadowing of what happens to Jack? The idea that the rhino is a foreshadowing of what happened in the port at Medina that Jack himself was a blindfolded rhino, just as we said, going back and forth. And maybe, really good thinking here by Brian, maybe Hart was the apparatus hanging Jack out there as he scampered in the air back and forth. And maybe also we can look at the metaphor of the rhino. The the rhino is described with this gray color. Maybe the rhino is being described in the same language as a gun. Now, O'Brien gives the rhino this really quite martial description, and that makes the symbology clear. So, great shout out. First of all, we love the discussion on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Patreon from all of our listeners, so thank you. And thank you and well-spotted to Brian. It's great to have you following along. Intelligence operative, lubber's whole guest, host of Combat and Classics podcast, and a gentleman and scholar. Thank you for joining us on that conversation, Brian. We'll be back in touch. Jack realizes, you know, there's, there's not really much he can do about the crew's feelings right now at least the crew that had not sailed with him before. So you know, the, the folks that know him, they, they, they certainly haven't lost faith in him, but the, 
the folks that don't know him, as we talked about last week, that, you know, kind of the, the bloom is off the rose a little bit. He, they thought he was going to be, as you said last week, in the real salamander, and he's not. But even though Jack realizes he there's nothing he can do about the crew's feeling, he really seems to be impacted by this. And then it seems to me he goes back and he takes it out on Stephen because mm. they've, they've had this discussion just a minute ago about the weather gauge. And now, I mean, Jack just really beats him up with this long explanation about the weather gauge. He wonders, you know, how about how little Stephen seems to understand given this long time that he's been at sea, wonders if he even realizes that it's the wind that moves the ships, you know, <laughs> and it, you know it's just, um, he, you know, he's just like going on and on and on. And then uh, Stephen, you know, had wanted to get there quickly because he wanted to defeat Napoleon so, so desperately. And Jack calls this desire to get there faster and to lose the weather gauge rank treason wow which is i mean that's really it's it's what is it hitting it a bit high right <laughs> yeah, anyways yeah, Stephen, you know Stephen admits he's he, you know I'm, I'm no great naval strategist he's more of a landborn genius if you will uh and then he reminds jack that as he says whenever there is a battle i'm required to stay below and that i love this that you know it's Jack, it gets caught up. You know, Jack is so taking this out on him. You know, the thought in Jack's mind of somebody that, oh my God, you never get to see real action. This softens Jack. This is this is like a fate that should befit no man. Everybody should be able to be right up there on deck in the middle of the cannons flying. And yes, said Jack, shaking his head. It is very unfortunate, very unfortunate indeed. And in a gentler tone, he asked Stephen, whether he would like to hear of a battle ideal in all its stages. <laughs> I love that. Oh, it's a great little moment. A little moment of friendship and acknowledgement between the two of them. Yes. And Stephen's quite happy to hear about this action and all is well between the two of them. Jack describes what he hopes might happen or what he expects might happen as they look out for the Admiral's top lights. And then we learn at first light, one of the frigates out ahead, and I do hope it will be the surprise. Look, there she is, moving up to take her station now. He goes on to talk about how she was refitted at Cadiz. They did wonders for her, brand new knees, stringers, camp pieces, how she flies. She seems to be coming dangerously close to us, observed Stephen, having stared for a while. I dare say Latham has thought of something witty to say to us about our hawsers and Irish pennants. Now, we're going to come back to the Irish penance thing in a second, but Jack's admiring how the surprise speeds towards them and then, as exactly as he predicted, Latham slows down and asks Jack if he, Jack, needs the bosun's help dealing with all of these Irish penance. And Jack replies that from the look of Latham's ship, he wouldn't have thought he had a bosun or a seaman aboard. And the Worcester crew all cheer. And from their open ports, they ask the surprise if she'd like any use, which is... Uh, facetious reference to their barber that had recently been sentenced to death for bestiality and to to use a phrase that often gets used i think they think that that settled his hash right that's right <laughs> so the surprise speeds off presumably having been bested in witticisms by the crew of the worcester and stephen asks what latham meant by irish penance and Jack gives this explanation irish penance are those untidy flakes and wefts of hemp on the horses so he's talking about the little spindly bits of fiber that are kind of blowing out sideways from a rope that's been laid up from hemp fiber itself. 
they would be intolerably slipshod in regular rigging. There, do you see in there? We call them Irish pennants. And, Mike, this is almost a moment where you think, oh, Jack, you've been laid by the lee here. You've you've introduced a humorous reference to Irishness and you're not going to realise that you've caused offence to Stephen. But I have no fear. Stephen's right across this. Do you indeed, says Stephen. Yet they are utterly unknown in Irish ships and when they are perceived in others, they are universally termed Saxon standards. <laughs> As the kids would say, Boom. That's right. <laughs> Boom, indeed. So it's great, isn't it? Stephen scores a point. Um, and having made a few false steps earlier in the book with his naval sarcasm and his humour, it's great to see that Stephen's back on form. He manages to land his points about mumps and orchitis. He manages to land his joke about Graham being his lawful prize. And now he manages to land a joke um, showing that he doesn't care for the uh, for the description of Irish penance. So well played, Doctor. Well played, indeed. Ah, oh. Well, you know, they're going through the night and, and they finally, they see the Admiral's top lights and pulling has the Worcester's lights lit in reply seconds before any other ship in the squadron. So they've kind of wiped the eyes of the rest of the squadron because they are right on it here. And Jack gets back with Stephen, continues to explain this ideal battle uh, of, you know, what he's hoping is about to happen here. And, and tell Stephen that he won't be satisfied until they have 20 prizes and a dukedom for the admiral. And, and Stephen takes this all in. And then he points out that, you know, 20 prizes, that's more ships than the French have with them. And then Jack realizes that he has what Jack calls been conjuring fate. He's kind of magically trying to, you know, change what might happen here because he really... Yeah expects a very severe encounter here. He knows that the French have great gunnery and are fierce fighters. And Stephen, too, we find in this scene, is thinking about the carnage that he's about to see below the prospect of huge slaughter. Yeah, and it's already starting to take its toll on the fleet. One of the squadron's ships signals overpressed with sail and jack says there'll be plenty more top gallants gone in the morning if the breeze keeps freshening and of course this is why jack has got these untidy hairy cablets to the mastheads to give him the power in his rigging to stand up to the pressure of the breeze right. stephen notices as well how rough the sea is and jack tells him to get some rest he says never fear i promise you shall miss nothing and Morning comes and unfortunately, no one wakes Stephen up. He's had eight hours sleepless, had finally taken a small draft of laudanum and he's woken by a jet of water coming in through the ship's side, which, by the way, Mike, is a really telling <laughs> um, analysis of just how much the Worcester's working. She's working so much that a gap opens in the side of the ship. Water squirts into Stephen's cabin. He's woken up from a dream of whales and we get another telling sign that all is not well aboard the Worcester because he calls for his servant and there's no answer. He goes to the wardroom. It's deserted. Again, no servants. And the ship crashes down into a wave. He turns a double backward somersault, miraculously landing on his feet. And he thinks that his dream would, would have been that of the ship diving upon whales, which is kind of an ominous thing for a ship to do, even in a dream. Right, right. Especially a tall ship. <laughs> yeah. Different for a submarine. On deck, Stephen notices that everybody looks grave. 
Um, he knows this is some kind of an emergency. And, and O'Brien writes, for one of the oldest, most strictly observed of all naval rules requires that those who attended to the officer's comfort should never, never be called away unless instant disillusion threatened. Yet here before him at the pumps, <laughs> yeah, here before him at the pumps waiting their turn stood his own servant, the wardroom servant, Killick himself, and the captain's cook. Literally all hands to the pumps. Right. Right. So Stephen doesn't want to disturb Jack. He's concerned that he's an officer out of uniform on the quarter deck. He tries to slide behind the midshipman to get to his two assistants and the master to figure out what's going on when another crash of the ship sends him sliding across towards Jack's feet. Jack asks a young midshipman to fetch a hat for Stephen, puts it on with pulling his help, and there says, but there they are, he burst out, his voice cracking with emotion. There they are for all love. It's the French. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, I do love this. It is, you know, Stephen goes tumbling across the deck, slides into Jack's feet. You would, you know, completely improperly dressed in his nightgown and not, not his uniform. And, and Jack tells him, you know, basically, if you ever lose your J-drop, you, you could make a great tumbler. You look really good down there. By the way, <laughs> fetch him a hat, you know, you know, takes him there and is showing off the French air. And there they are. There the French are. There's like a mile long of them. They're kind of spread out in the storm themselves. And the rear of their line is only about two miles from the squadron. You know, Stephen gives Jack joy of his prophecy, but then looking at the French and looking at Jack, he realizes that the prophecy wasn't completely fulfilled. Instead of the wind blowing from the English to the French and having the weather gauge, the wind is blowing from the French back towards the English. They have the weather gauge, and O'Brien tells us they're using it to go home, declining battle. Stephen turns again, looks at Jack, and sees a look of cruel, long-drawn-out disappointment on his face. Yeah, so Jack's still hoping that the wind might back and favour them. But as it is, they've got no chance with their foul bottoms, with their old ships. And Mike, we've even got a sound effect to go with these ageing, worn-out ships. Stephen asks what's this frightful noise he can hear, and they explain to him it's slapping. It's what northern-designed ships do in short, steep seas like they do in the Mediterranean. And he asks if it's dangerous, and Jack explains that as long as they don't spring a butt, they're unlikely to founder. But that's that's Jack, I think, paying it off pretty lightly. He returned, it says, he returned to the task of driving a heavy, partially waterlogged and possibly disintegrating ship through a savage, chaotic cross sea, the Mediterranean, at its sudden worst. And all the time he tried to persuade himself that the rearmost Frenchmen were not drawing away. And we get this really nice change in point of view. Jack looks across to the flagship. He sees the Admiral strapped to a chair on the deck of his ship, watching the fleeing French. Wow. Oh, man. Wow. We've got this, all of this build up, Mike, all of this chase, and still no action. You know, and, and it's funny, you're right, Ian. There's, there's no action. We've been dying for a big action. And in fact, you know, O'Brien is writing about an action. It's an action between the ships and the sea. And, you know, yeah. we're going along. And I, I kept wondering, how does he do this? How does he keep us engaged? But 
we're we're having a battle every bit as big as the cannons flying as as they're as they're running after these ships here. Yeah, and it's noticeable again that for the last you know, a few sections of this paragraph, we've been right up close and personal with Stephen and then also with Jack. And that's another sign that O'Brien's kind of drawing us into the action. I think we get this really close first-person perspective. But we're also invited for a moment to look across the squadron. Lots of the squadron's other ships are showing signs of being battered by the storm. They're all still racing along, trying to chase the French, trying to join battle. They're all doing as Jack does, these great feats of seamanship, trying to keep these ships afloat but it has a human cost as well because Stephen visits the sick bay of the Worcester he operates on some of the injuries that have come about during this action as you say Mike against the sea there's one particularly bad complex compound fracture that he has to deal with and while he's operating Stephen and his assistants discuss the four feet four feet of water in the hold Stephen assures them that the seamen are only trying to make their flesh creep but Mike four feet of water in the hold doesn't sound like a good sign to me. No, no. Like you say, getting, you know, getting awoken up in the morning by waves coming in below deck, not a good sign. Four feet of water in the well, not a good sign here. No. So Stephen's watching what appears to be this motionless chase, this inching forward, gaining ground or trying to gain ground on the French in spite of all the ships tearing along. And Moat joins him. Well, doctor, said he, sitting warily on the coming, we did our best. We notice, of course, Mike, that that's a past tense. We did our best. Yeah. Is it over so? Cried Stephen. I'm amazed, amazed. Moet says, I'm amazed it lasted so long. I never thought to see her take such a pounding and still swim. Look at that, he said, pointing to a length of caulking that had worked out of a seam on the deck. God love us, what a sight. She spewed the oakum from her side long since which of course is why Stephen got woken up with a face full of water. She spewed the oakum from her sides long since, as you would have expected with such laboring, but to see it coming from a midship's seam. And Stephen asks, is that why we must give up? Oh no, says Moet. It's the breeze that fails us. Wow. Oh. Wow. And Mike, I'm back with the horse metaphor from earlier on, right? First of all, there's this very destructive chase. You know, Jack is pushing his ship and pushing his ship. And unlike other chases where the ship being chased is the one that's destroying itself. You know, we've had lots of cases of either Jack's ship or somebody else's ship destroying itself, being run onto the rocks, having to throw its cannon overboard, having to start its water over the side. But now it's the chasing ships that are being chased to destruction. And Jack's ship, just like all the other ships in the squadron, is sacrificing itself as the pursuer. And we've got this idea once again of uh, self-destructive masculinity, you know, all these male characters beating themselves to a pulp, fruitlessly, we think, fruitlessly trying to chase the French in this contrary breeze. It is a, it's, it's, it's exciting. It's engaging. And, and it's certainly, you know, as we're saying a minute ago, it's not your usual naval action. It's certainly not what you see rolling out in a Marvel film or something like that. And it's still really good stuff. And like you say, just very different, very different than the chases and the actions that we usually see here. Well, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of at their last, you know, kind of their wits end and uh, the breeze is failing. So the Admiral decides, okay, forget it. You know, I'm not going to bring the, the slowest one along with us. He sends his best sailors ahead to attack the French rear, hoping that 
if if he can get some of the ships at the rear attacked, uh, the rest of the French fleet will turn around to come to their aid. It'll give the squadron time to come up, and and he hopes that he'll be able to get there before these English ships that he sends ahead are mauled. So. Uh, five big ships and two frigates. One, the deer surprise, they sail ahead. And, and I love this, you know, Moet and, and Stephen are watching this. And as these ships go by, Moet says, some fellows have all the luck. <laughs> and, you know, I'm thinking, God, I, I love this. I, I love this. And I would love to imagine myself being able to say that, you know, so here we are. If we don't go down in the midst of the sea, we'll just go stand in front of all the French cannon and, yeah. and boy, and, and who's the lucky one here. So, but I, but I love that here they go. So luck's always been a theme here. Lucky Jack is in command and uh, we wonder how's it going to go? Well, they set off and it must've been agony, not only for Moat, but for Jack as well to see these, the, the lightweight fast ships, these frigates, commanded by other officers being set free to have one last chase in the direction of the French. The men on the board of the Worcester waved and cheered as the frigates went by, and Jack wonders to himself whether the Worcester herself can keep going or whether she's going to fall to leeward with all the other lame ducks. Remember that at the beginning of the book, we were pretty clear that Worcester was not a great sailor, certainly not a very weatherly sailor, and it's a great feat of seamanship by Jack to have got her even to this point. But now he's just praying that they can float until the battle begins, if indeed there's going to be a battle. Because after half an hour, we see that there's going to be no such action. The ships are being headed by the wind. The long chase, said O'Brien, must end in slow disappointment and anticlimax. But just then, the two frigates pulled ahead, bearing down on the French ship Robust of 80 guns. They opened up with their bow guns as soon as they were in range, hoping to knock away spars. And it must have been agony for Jack watching this as a spectator from far off. And he's joining in, you know, just like somebody watching a sports match. He's got his own commentary on what they should do. Luff up, for God's sake, luff up, said Jack aloud as he followed them in their perilous course along the Robust side. And of course, he's meaning luff up so that they can bring their whole broadside to bear. But neither surprise nor Pomon luffed up. Both sides fired repeatedly at a distance. Neither did any apparent damage. And after the frigate's first unsuccessful run, Admiral Thornton threw out the signal of recall, emphasizing it with two guns. The Admiral also knew, of course, that peppering the robust at a distance is going to do her no damage at all, while there was every chance that both frigates might end up getting sunk with the heavy metal in the broadsides of these French ships of the line. Yeah, we can we can just see Jack like the armchair quarterback, but Jack, unlike most armchair quarterbacks, is a league MVP. And he would have been, <laughs> you know, Jack, we, we you know, we remember this before where Jack would be up against a heavier ship and take his little frigate right into her, because saying, you know, I can't do anything from the distance like she can, but if we can withstand that initial fire. I may actually be able to do some damage in here and slow them down. We've seen this happen before. And instead, these guys are out here trading long shots with this big, robust, who who Jack had mentioned earlier in the book was, you know, when they were saying, well, are we going to catch the the French fleet? He said, well, you know, we, they've got the robust and a couple others really slow sailors. The rest of them are fast. But if they're as slow as her, we might catch them. And, and sure enough, she's at the end of their line. But yeah. Because they don't have Jack as captain of one of these frigates, it's it's a wasted effort. So we get to the close of the chase and it says, almost immediately after the Admiral's second gun, and as though in answer to it, 
A particularly violent gust laid the Worcester over in a cloud of foam. She recovered heavily, all hands clinging to their holds, but as she came up and took the weather strain, so Jack heard the deep internal rending that he had dreaded. He and Pullings exchanged a glance. He stepped over to his larboard hawsers, felt their horrible slackness, mm. and called to the signal midshipman, Mr. Savage, prepare the hoist. I am overpressed with sail. Wow. So, Mike, we, we come back to the horse metaphor again. The, the horse that Jack has been riding all the way through this storm is finally worn out and lame. And Jack's masculinity, which has had a little bit of a Philip, is still, I think, in question. The French have managed to escape. Admiral Thornton hasn't had the climactic action that we thought would set him up. Stephen hasn't yet managed to make amends for Graham's misadventures on the shore of France. Nobody's happy quite yet. No, no. And I, I, I think despite uh, none of the men that we know of having caught mumps, they're all feeling a little bit like eunuchs themselves at this moment. Well, maybe we might all get to feel a little bit more masculine with a couple of chapters ahead of us. So what do you say, Mike, next time to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? With all my heart. Stephen assures them that the seamen are only trying to make their fresh clean, their fresh, 